really at this point, it's just the fabric of who we are. You know, every ski area, every business has its thing. And a snowboarding ban, regardless of how you feel about it, it's one of the things that makes Matt River what it is. People talk about scraping snow here, there, the way the moguls are formed. That, in my mind, is secondary to what Mad River is. And it's just, you know, we are a ski area. We are a throwback to what it was. And that, you know, as far as I can tell, is the way it's going to stay. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. So good to have you. So good to be back to the Storm Skiing Podcast. We took a little time out there to focus on the COVID fallout. And we probably aren't done with that yet, but I felt the hunger for something non-shutdown related. So, here you go. Before we get into it, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And, most important, subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. Episode 15, Matt Lillard, General Manager of Mad River Glen, Vermont. Here we go. A lot of you have been waiting a long time for this one. And it's no wonder why. Mad River Glen, if you haven't been there, is a special place. Now, we have a lot of people listening to this podcast from outside the Northeast, as I've come to find out. And what I would tell those people is that if you ever come out here to ski, and you can only ski one place, Mad River Glen is that place. It is the most distinct and unforgettable ski area in New England or anywhere else on the East Coast. It is a must-ski. First of all, the single chair as in one person at a time. It has a few doubles too, but the single chair is their alpha dog, the summit chair, and it tags the best terrain. The place has tight trails, all natural snow above a 2,300 foot snowmaking line, and just a really cool ambiance. It is also cooperatively owned. Matt explains how all this works in the interview, but basically it means that you're never gonna wake up and find out that Altera bought Mad River Glen and is going to connect it to Sugarbush next door. It is the ultimate indie but you have to ski it. No snowboards allowed. I know that ticks some of you off. You don't like the policy. You think it's antiquated or even discriminatory. I have an opinion on that. And if you want to read what it is, go read the accompanying podcast article at skiing.substack.com. For every podcast, I write an overview that includes some context and some info I couldn't fit into the recording. I do that because you don't come here to listen to me ramble. You come here to listen to people who know what the hell they're talking about tell you about their mountains. So I'm going to shut up and do that. Matt is a really smart guy with a strong sense of Mad River Glen's history and a vision of how the mountain can grow without sacrificing what makes it special. We get deep into everything here, including the COVID shutdown, how the whole operation works, and yes, that snowboarding ban. Let's do it. My guest today has been the general manager of Mad River Glen, Vermont since 2017. The ski area is home to the last remaining single chair in the continental United States, which serves 45 trails on a 2,000-foot vertical drop, nearly all of it covered with natural snow. The ski area has been cooperatively owned and governed since 1995. Prior to joining the Mad River Glen team, he was the general manager at Eagle Crest Ski Area in Juneau, Alaska. He started his career at Okimo in Magic Mountain, Vermont. Matt Lillard is my guest. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Matt, we're all well into the shutdown now, so this isn't new to any of us at this point. I know you said I'm talking to you in your home right now, and typically you'd probably be in your office right around now. Uh, how are you holding up up there in Vermont? Are you and your family staying safe? We are. We are. We've uh, t- definitely taken this very seriously and uh, taking all precautions. And while it's been challenging, it's had some uh, had some good times and, and bad times, but we're, uh, we're, we're getting through it. 
Glad to hear that, Matt. Uh, so on Saturday, going back to the shutdown here, on Saturday, March 14th, Mad River Glen announced that the following day would be its last of the 2019 to 20 ski season to help stop the spread of COVID-19. Take us through your thought process leading up to the shutdown and what ultimately compelled you to make that call. Sure. So um, it was, uh, I think it's safe to say, probably the the most hectic five-day period I've ever had in my career, um, ski or otherwise. And, uh, you know, coming into that weekend, um, you know, the the pandemic was picking up steam and, and things were changing. And we had we had developed some plans coming into the weekend we thought were pretty good. And, and quite honestly, we thought, you know, we had intentions of making it through the weekend. Um, we had taken steps to, you know, to, uh, that we thought were necessary and adequate at the time. And then as that, uh, as everything just kind of accelerated at an extremely rapid pace, um, we got through, got through Saturday and it was a good day. Um, looking back, you know, the weather wasn't awesome, but people were happy and, and, uh, and we were taking the steps necessary. And then, you know, all of a sudden Saturday afternoon, early evening, more and more news came out and, uh, you know, Colorado's governor had required the ski areas to shut down, and other areas in Vermont were were starting to shut down, and some had already. And uh, you know, ended up calling a manager's meeting over the phone. I actually went back into work just so I could focus and uh, not be distracted, and uh, reached out to my board and others, and started making decisions. And I think sometime around 9:30, 10 that night, we made the call, um, put together a short marketing message, and got the word out. It was uh, a pretty amazing. 48 hours, all told. So what were some of those precautions that you put into place, and how did those end up working out? They worked out pretty well. I mean, in hindsight, you know, had we known what we know, we probably would have skipped that step and, and likely gone to a closure. Um, but, you know, we had done things, you know, stopped accepting cash, um, you know, more cleaning of surfaces, uh, hand sanitizer all around the area more than it usually is. Yeah, we had changed up our food service operations, so there was no longer were customers grabbing items. They were, you know, basically ordering something and being handed directly to them. Um, encouraging people to spend as much time outside as well and as little time in the uh, base lodge as possible, uh, as well as uh, rearranging our ticket office to keep people from being inside. Um, so those are the steps that we had taken that day and, and leading up to it. And then when we when we went for our, our last day, we basically all but limited except for the bathroom on the lower level, the, the base box was closed and uh, the ticket windows were just outside only and, and not selling any tickets at that point. It was all just either pre-purchased or uh, mad cards and other products skiing on the hill. So once Sugarbush shut down, obviously owned by Altera Mountain Company and they shut all 15 of their resorts, that mountain is right next door to yours. It's a pretty high volume mountain. Was the concern that everyone who was planning on skiing at Sugarbush on Sunday was going to come over to Mad River Glen if you opened up that ticket booth? Yes. Yep. Plain and simple, that was one of the bigger concerns. Is that yeah, you know, we we had to find a way. We wanted to we wanted to find a way to close out the season and give our you know our shareholders, our pass holders, our mad card holders, our most loyal people a shot at one more day. But we were struggling with a way to do it where we weren't just going to be overwhelmed with with the people that we knew were in the valley and, and up at, you know, uh, at the same time, Vale had it also announced um, an Epic Resorts that they were closing. So there's a huge population of skiers at Stowe, which is not far away. Um, and our, we had a serious concern that we would be simply packed. So we decided to just sell a very limited number of lift tickets in advance online. Those sold out probably within an hour. Um, and then we went with it just on that Sunday for the for those you know the pass holder populations, the loyal crowd, and, and a few a few 
few lucky ones who got to buy a ticket. And how did your pass holders react when you announced this news? Generally, uh, I don't want to say overwhelmingly positive, but they were all very appreciative that we that we made every effort to give them one last day. Um, the vast, vast majority, pretty much everybody understood where, where, where it was at and where it was going. Um, certainly some people, I think, wish we had done it a day earlier um, and not opened at all on that Sunday, but for where we stood at that point, you know, people were here. They were if they weren't going to be skiing. They were going to be spending their day, you know, likely around town um, before they headed south. So, you know, we, giving them the recreation outlet to get up there and, and get out on the hill. Because from a you know from a safety and health standpoint, the skiing is the easy part, right? Especially at Matterhorn Glen with a single chair, double mm-hmm. chairs. We don't have enclosed gondolas. We don't have bubble chairs. Um, so the skiing is the relatively safe part. It's the ancillary operations that that are the you know, the real risk factor. Right. So March 15th was your last day of lift-served skiing, but for several weeks you did allow folks to skin up and ski down the mountain. You still had plenty of snow. And then on April 2nd, you put out a joint statement with Sugarbush suspending uphill travel. Uh, what brought you to the conclusion that you had to make this move? Yeah, so we had, um, you know, we agreed that we would, you know, keep the mountain open um, for skinning after the, immediately after the closure and, and monitor it as it went. And generally, you know, especially during the week, the people we saw were our regular people, people we knew, you know, from the local area. Um, so we weren't concerned there. But we noticed, you know, the first weekend wasn't the greatest weather, but it was pretty good, and the parking lot got, you know, pretty busy. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the vast majority of people, as, as usual, were, were heeding social distancing measures, but... We saw some tailgate parties. We saw some things we didn't necessarily want to see, um, and that continued for you know a week or two. And, and then you know we looked at it was a weekend coming up, and, and I, we'd been talking with Sugarbush all along about it because we are one valley, and we wanted to do as best we can for our local community and Vermont. And uh, you know we saw some snow coming in, we saw the sun coming out, and uh, we just reached that level where we just we and, and the pandemic was worsening, and uh, you know cases were increasing, and just decided that. You know, enough was enough, and and, and getting together and, and coming out with one solid message was was what we thought was the right answer, and and move forward with that. And were people pretty respectful of that once you closed it down? Did you did you see anyone trying to sneak up the hill, or was it pretty consistent? It was pretty respectful. Um, I'm not going to say we didn't see anybody. There are certainly ways onto the mountain that aren't through the base area, um, and you know. Certainly, more of our, our diehard people um, and some locals probably knew those ways. Um, we weren't up there actively policing it. We didn't want to get into that. Um, but all in all, people respected it. Um, leading up to that closure, we had put out um, some messages on social media just trying to encourage local people only. That's a very hard message to, to put out. You know, we, 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 at one point we said, you know, people from the Valley and, and uh, for those that know our geography, you know, this, this town's right on the other side of the, of the Greens. And, they, you know, they, some people from there reached out, and shareholders, and said, well, what about me? I'm, you know, is the crow flies closer than the, the person on the far side of the valley? And, and we're trying to let them know that, you know, the intent was not, a, you know, a specific set of town lines. It was more trying to get the message of local. But most people understood you always have your detractors and it's people that, have, that are going to say something. But... It's, uh, it, was, it was it was the right decision. I'm glad we were able to do it with with Sugarbush. I think it uh, lended credence to the message and and helped helped stem the, the spread in the valley. 
So one of the other fallouts from the early closure, obviously, was uh, your employees were out of several weeks of work. Uh, you talked about this a little bit at the annual board meeting, but can you talk a bit about how you were able to help out your employees who lost some weeks of work from the end of the season in the shutdown? Yeah, so we had a couple different stages and a couple different groups of employees. So for our, you know, for our lift attendants and people who, um, you know, are not our, our, our seasonal managers, we, we, you know, kept people on doing some work around the area that we needed to get done to close up as best we could. We're generous with their hours, um, and then we actually came out with a bonus structure for, for you know, the vast majority of employees that spent nice. the season with us and and was able to roll that out. Uh, roughly two weeks after we closed. Um, and we did that. We also, you know, just like some other ski areas, we had a lot of food that we were sitting on, and, and our food vendors had warehouses that were full, um, and whether it was health reasons or just couldn't take the space back, weren't able to return it. So we wanted to make sure that got into the right hands. So we started opening that up bit by bit to, uh, to employees to come in and grab loaves of bread and, and beef and, and some of the staples to help get them through. Um, and then also for our seasonal managers, we... You know, we feel strongly that we try to, you know, try to give them a solid commitment of December through April every year, and we we held by that commitment and we kept them on, um, whether they were, you know, working from home or you know not working at all or 40 hours or not, kept them on full time through our committed date of the uh, first week in April or annual meeting date, and got them through that, and then also uh, kicked in a little bit at the end to help them get through before you know the unemployment back rolls got solved and they could find other ways to either move on to the next job if that was open for them or, or find ways to make ends meet. Well, it sounds like you got creative with it and you're able to take care of uh, different employee groups in different ways, which is terrific. Uh, before we get into anything else, Matt, I want to talk about the co-op a little bit because it's hard to understand Mad River Glen unless you understand the very unique ownership structure that you have up there. So as a background, in 1995, Betsy Pratt sold the ski area to a group of skiers who formed a co-op. 25 years later, that co-op is still thriving. Uh, can you give us the basics of how that co-op works and how you, as the general manager, work with them to manage the ski area? Certainly. So the co-op is uh, it's a true Vermont co-op. So it, it, it acts just like you know any other food co-op, you know, Middlebury co-op, Hunger Mountain co-op would work. Um, people can buy into it. Uh, share costs $2,000. We can sell as many as 3,000 shares. Uh, we currently have roughly 2,100 shares sold to roughly 1,800 people. Um, somebody can own up to four. And uh, a shareholder, they're an owner, an actual owner of the mountain, so they get vo- voting rights on certain aspects of it. It's really the bigger picture things, um, big expenditures, bigger policy changes. They're outlined in our bylaws. Um, as a shareholder, they are required to spend $200 a year that they have to um, give to the co-op by October 1st of every year. Um, and it can be, you know, they can spend that on a season's pass. They can spend it on Lawson's in the pub, um, any, anything at the area. Um, but they do have to commit that expenditure to the mountain. And then from there, a board of directors is voted on every year, um, and it's on a rotating structure. And that roughly three, or three people per year, um, or their terms are up. And uh, and it's it's a nine-person board gets voted in. Six are in state, three are out of state, and. Uh, and they are so they they are tasked with overseeing the mountain, and they hire me as a general manager, and then I hire a staff and run the mountain. So the operational decisions are left up to me, um, in consultation with the board. So, for instance, the shutting down of the ski area is an operational decision. So the final decision falls on me, but I certainly do it in consultation with 
my managers and staff and, and the board as well. So they were all part of that discussion and definitely solicited feedback. Um, but ultimately, they're tasked with hiring me, and then I run the mountain. So since that co-op was launched, a lot of different skiers have tried to band together and form co-ops. Saddleback tried it. Uh, Magic Mountain at one point tried it. Both of those skiers, thankfully, are are on the up now. Saddleback coming back hopefully this winter. Uh, but they, no one has had success with the co-op structure. Why is it so hard to do? Um, it's... Uh... This can kind of come across wrong, and it's not my intent. I was actually part of the magic structure when I worked there to, to try to form okay. that. I left before it came into, before it, you know, finalized itself. Um, but it's, you know, I think uh, Matter of Glad is a very special place. It's got a very special passion, and they were able to to develop it in such a way where people are willing to, you know, to buy into the mountain um, without any, you know, real benefit. I mean, they get a small discount on passes, but as a shareholder, you're actually required to pay. It's not seen as an investment, um, and they just understand that it's something that they're there to preserve and not, you know, not to not to get a, a monetary return on. Um, and so it's. Uh, I also think the mountain was in a in a pretty good place, whereas at, at Magic, and I don't know the whole history of Saddleback other than watching it from afar. Um, when the co-op took over, Mad River was at a better spot. Um, it wasn't, you know, going to be closed imminently or, or trying to come back from a closure. It was an operating ski area with a passionate and, and robust client base. So I, th- I think that certainly helps um, do that. And I think, you know, ski areas are looking at it, should definitely look at it as a way to continue something rather than bring something back because the bring something back seems to be the stumbling block. What was the missing ingredient at Magic? And obviously Magic is thriving right now under Jeff Hathaway and that ownership group. So they found another way to make that work. But uh, you were there in a different era, different management. What do you think that Magic would have had to have done to have made that structure work? Um, do it sooner. Um, I think do it. You know, Magic got, just got to a place, and I was, you know, uh, while I was there, I, I, you know, I'm thankful for it because one of the things that got me to do was get involved in every aspect of scary operations because it was mm-hmm. literally putting your finger in the in the hole in the dam every time it popped up, and there were a lot of them. Um, but I think it got to the point it needed so you know so much capital and such a, a, a singular vision to bring it back that, 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 that the structure was hard to do. Um, and I also think that uh, the, the greatest thing that Mad River had to probably get the co-op going was its its current owner and Betsy Pratt had that vision to do that and wanted to, mm. really wanted to. Whereas the ownership of Magic at the time never really bought into the process. And we're not nearly as accommodating as Betsy was with Matt Rivers. So that's a huge part of the picture. And I think Saddleback might have had the same type of thing where, you know, their goal wasn't to hand it to the co-op. And, and I think, you know, Betsy, uh, if it wasn't her idea, she fully bought into it from the get-go. Well, Magic or uh, Mad River Glen has proven that the concept can work with the right buy-in and the right committed, passionate uh, co-op ownership base. As we see more and more consolidation, Sugarbush, for example, right next door to you, just got bought by Altera last year. Um, and as the cost of operating ski areas increases and it becomes harder to do this independently, could the Mad River Glen co-op model be a kind of template that would allow smaller ski areas to thrive amid these pressures? I mean, you've worked at a lot of ski areas, so I imagine you have good perspective on something like this. I think so. I think it's... Uh... You know, it, it's certainly something that, that smaller ski areas should, should consider um, if they're in that position where, you know, a lot of these ski areas were founded some years ago and are family-owned, and, 
and uh, you know, as the next generation comes along, they might not be as interested in in uh, spending the time and effort it takes to keep these areas going and want to hand it off. And if if that group of people is willing to make it work, I think it's got a lot of merit. Um, I'd also say it's not the only structure that I think small areas can thrive on. Um, prior to Matter of Land, I was at Eagle Crest Gary in Alaska, and that's municipally owned, so owned by the city and gets support from um, from the local municipality to, to operate itself, which is another great structure. Um, so it's not the only one, but I think it's got, you know, the co-op certainly has merit, um, and if the right pieces are there, um, it, it certainly can be, we've proved it can be successful. Yeah, I think with with the uncertainty in the winter ahead, you might be getting some phone calls saying, hey, uh, how do we do this? Because it, it's, it's uh, tough times ahead. Um, so, so the shareholder meeting, typically you'll come together in April and have a big group meeting, you know, ski the day and then uh, meet the base of the mountain afterwards. But this year, for anyone who's watching on Facebook, which you can still go do on Mad River Glen's Facebook page, uh, the annual shareholder meeting was a live stream. How surreal was that? Uh, it was quite surreal. I, that, that being said, I'll say it wasn't nearly as odd as I thought it would be or uncomfortable. It, uh, okay. you know, it's, um, it worked, it worked surprisingly well. Um, I think everybody was prepared to, to make it work well, which obviously helps, but, uh, you know, we were able to pull it off and it's obviously, it's, it's usually a great weekend and you see a lot of faces you don't always see coming together and really celebrating what the co-op is. And we weren't able to do that as a group. But we were able to get our message off and 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 uh, you know do the business of the meeting without any hiccups and uh, you know still able to solicit questions and get you know get information back from people. So it was uh, certainly surreal and, and and odd. And I'd hope you know we're not in that situation again. But if we were, I feel comfortable that it was a viable format. Yeah, it's amazing how fast everyone has just pivoted to being able to do almost everything remotely, online, video conference. So. Uh, good on you for getting that done. So some interesting numbers came up at the meeting. You said that past sales were up 26% over last year. It's a $184,000 bump. And you said this was a large jump over normal trends. Uh, to be quite frank, this is the opposite of what I would have expected with number one, the economic fallout from the pandemic. And number two, Vail entering the Northeast in force with this $599 Northeast uh, Epic Pass. And number three, uh, Altera, uh, buying Sugarbush and Sugarbush now being unlimited with blackouts for $699 on the uh, Icon Base Pass. Your pass is a bit more than that, just good for access at that mountain. So it's it's the opposite of the trend I would have expected. But what do you think drove that huge increase? I think the biggest thing is, is once again, it's it's Matt Rivers following and it's loyal people. Um, yeah, we ended up, that was early on in the forecast, we ended up doubling uh, the previous year or just about, um, which was, which blew all of our expectations away. You know, there are a couple of things, that, you know, everything is nuanced as, as always, but you know, this was only our second year selling spring passes. So I do think there was more people that were just accustomed to doing it and they, you know, they know they're going to be back. Um, our, our season pass uh, holders and the number of them is a very, it's been a pretty steady thing over the history of the co-op. Um, mm-hmm. Last year was our first big advance year where we, uh, we really grew that base and we were able to hold on to a lot of those. And really, we just communicated with our loyal people and our shareholders and said, because a lot of them want to help. You know, they want to help our employees. Um, they want to help sure, make sure the mountain survives and gets through this. And our big message to them was, you know, while a lot of you have great ideas and are willing to donate here and there, the number one thing you can do to ensure the co-op has, you know, a successful summer and can continue to operate is to buy a pass. 
and we really hammered that message home. And I think that's really what uh, what drove that. You know, the previous year when we did the first year of spring pass sales, roughly 40% of our pass sales in the spring were to new people. This year was only about 12. Mm. So it was really okay. our return people who, you know, are going to buy a pass every year, and they just, you know, they, they bought into the concept, and, and I'm glad that they did, that, that buying that pass now enables us to have the cash to operate through the summer and, and, and make sure that we've got that secure future that we need. Well, the treasurer of your finance committee, Matthew Milan, said that Meadowbrook Glen had two of its top five months in the history of the co-op in October and February. And he pointed to, uh, quote, decent weather, exceptional operations, good tweaks to the timing and price of our offerings, and consistency in our product as the catalyst for that. Now, the, the weather is self-explanatory, but can you talk a little bit more about the other three so we can understand how you reoriented your operations your offerings and your products to drive these better results you're seeing. Certainly, um, yeah, it was an amazing season. Um, even with the even with the early shutdown, we're you know we're going to come out of this you know uh, better than average um, as far as our NOI goes. And and uh, we were actually running some numbers the other day. And had we had even a remotely decent spring, we would have been knocking on the door of the best of the best financial year the co-op has ever had. So. Um, that was really amazing to see. But we've done a couple things um, that I think are really integral to, you know, to our success now and moving forward at Mad River. Um, the first one, um, I think, is most important is working on that cons- consistency of product. I mean, we're a natural ski hill or natural snow ski hill. Um, we always will be. But that being said, we have invested, um, with the help of our of our Preserve Our Paradise campaign, in, in snowmaking on the lower stretches of the mountain to ensure that we can be skiing in as adverse conditions as possible. Um, and that has really helped just instill confidence in people that we're going to have a skiing product, that we're not just going to be, you know, a, a bar at a ski mountain, um, that we will be skiing, you know, if it rains or otherwise. And that, that has really started to, started to impact the bottom line in a very positive way. Um, we're seeing more people um, locally and around Vermont and, and, and elsewhere that just, you know, they can now feel confident that if they invest in the season's past, they're going to be skiing on something. Whereas in years past, it was uh, a lot more weather dependent, so that's really helped. Um, the other thing we've done, you know, we uh, we've worked our seasons pass uh, offerings um, a fair amount last year and came out with some new products. Uh, chief among them, the most popular, has been an inexpensive pass for the 19 to 29 year old age group, and that's an age group that we haven't always very done done very well with the free uh, seasons pass program that uh, the Mad River introduced to the ski market in the early 2000s has been, I think, the single greatest thing for the future of Mad River Glen. But what, you know, what it led to was we had a lot, you know, a lot of youth, a lot of families, but once they hit that 19, got into college, they kind of went elsewhere for a while, and they would come back when they had kids to take advantage of the free pass. But we were, there was mm-hmm. a gap there, so we were starting to fill that gap uh, with the season pass revenue, which is great. Um, at the same time, We've, we have adjusted to the dynamic pricing model that ski areas are going after um, and taking advantage of, you know, getting a better yield when the conditions are good. You know, we, mm-hmm. unlike a lot of ski areas, we have a capacity. Our parking lot is only so big. The, the line of the single chair and the double oak can only get so long before the, before the experience isn't good. So when we do have good snow, we need to find a way to drive that yield up as best we can and that dynamic pricing has, has enabled us to do that. It's not always, you know, I, I don't love it uh, from a philosophical standpoint all the time because it does seem 
hard to you know to have such a high lead rate and discount down from it, but it does work and it does do what we need it to do, and so that that's really helped drive revenue and, and make sure that we maintain that ex- that that experience. And then I'd say finally that you know the we, there's a lot of discussion with the Epic Pass with Icon coming into the area that we'd see some people moving away from Mad River and, and wanting more options that those passes provide. But it's actually been the opposite. We found that people are looking for an experience that we can provide. And if we focus on that experience, on the great skiing, on the amazing customer service, and on the community, that's something that people want to will invest in and want to come back for year after year. And that's really helped. And we've, you know, we've seen since Epic and Icon have come in, our numbers have only been up. Um, that has certainly been snow-related, but I think it's also just been they've been looking for that experience. And, you know, Mad River's got the advantage. We're, we're a bucket list item for people. And if they're going to be in the area on an epic pass for four or five days, taking a day to come check out Mad River is something they're going to want to do. And if they have a good experience, they're going to be back. And I, I think that's what we're finding. And anecdotally, have you been able to talk to some of these new pass holders? And have you heard people who are saying, well, you know, I love Sugarbush, but it's getting a little crowded with the Icon Pass. You know, let me try this out on a more consistent basis because it's more of the kind of experience I'm looking for. Are you hearing any of that? Absolutely. We're hearing it, you know, I think it's more from farther north from us in the epic world hmm. that we're seeing it. You know, I mean, Sugarbush does a very good job managing crowds um, to date anyway. Um, they've got a very big area. They've got, you know, the two different mountains. Um, but I think we're finding, and I, I think Sugarbush would agree, that, that the Valley is now offering a pretty amazing ski destination. It always has, but people are just finding it more um, being on you know, an icon-type product and, and that they can come take a break from that and spend a day over at Mad River. And then we're definitely seeing more families coming over. Our ski school programs are amazing. Our free ski and race programs are amazing. So rather than people dealing with kind of the hustle and bustle of the bigger areas and what those areas might be doing, they're seeing us as a much more viable option. Um, and it comes down to that great service, that great program, the amazing community, and then that consistency I went back to that, you know, there have been times in the not too distant past where, you know, there were multiple weekends in a ski season where our programs couldn't really run or they ran in a very curtailed manner because of the weather. Whereas now with our snowmaking and our grooming and our mountain operations, we've been able to be more consistent and provide a better product. Right. Uh, so the number one issue with season passes this year for skiers seems to be, uh, you know, what will happen if next season gets canceled, right? So a lot of mountains have been introducing refunds or deferral policies in response to that. Uh, your early bird pass sale ended April 15th. They're back on sale now. Uh, and comments on your Facebook page indicated that refunds would be automatic in the event that the mountain wasn't able to open. But is Matter River Glen considering formalizing some kind of refund or deferral policy in case the 2020 to 21 season either doesn't happen or is severely curtailed certainly it's things we talk about daily and what you know what the stance we've taken is that this environment is changing so fast and there are so many variables and you know in the speed of which it's changing the winter season is a very very long time away and to come out now with a more, with a formal policy for us just doesn't seem to make sense until we've got some more clarity so i fully envision us coming out at some point this summer just to reassure people that we will do right by them if they invest in Mad River. And I think, you know, our, our longtime people know, our shareholders know, that all of our decisions are based around providing the best possible options and experience and value for our shareholders, at the same time keeping the co-op sustainable. So that's how we're going to form our policy. 
Um, we've always been very generous with what you know what we offer people. Um, you know, in years past, if somebody buys a pass in August, let's say, and something happens in October and they can't ski for that season, if we haven't opened, you know, we're very generous with that return policy, um, a refund or credit, and, and, and we'll continue to do that, and we'll be formalizing something and getting out there. We just don't want to be doing it now because so many things can change. And, you know, I don't know what next season will look like. I don't think anybody does. So to pretend that we can and, and develop a policy just it does not make sense for us yet. It seems like you have some time. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that your next deadline before the price goes up is in October. So skiers could probably expect something before that. Certainly, yeah. We So we really, prior to, to last year, we didn't sell spring passes. So our normal timeline is such that we go out with our pricing and our promotions and, and our information in, 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 in August. That's when we mail our shareholder invoices and our you know the season guide to our to our audience, and so that's the time frame that we'll be looking at to have some more concrete answers for people. Because I, th- I do think they will need that, and I think it's important. It's just we want to do it right. We want to make sure that we're, we're doing right by the co-op and our skiers. So while we're on the subject of passes, uh, Doug Fish, founder of the Indy Pass, I know he came through Mad River Glen on his Northeast tour last winter. Uh, curious if you've considered joining the Indy Pass or or the Freedom Pass Alliance, though I'm less certain about that one right now, whether it's happening. But the but the Indy Pass is uh, is full speed ahead, from what I understand. We have, we have. It's uh, honestly the Freedom Pass has never been much on our radar. Um, you know, it's more of an add-on to people's passes, and and you know, we didn't see a huge value in that. You know, once again, unlike a lot of ski areas, we have a carrying capacity. And we hit it most decent weekends. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what we, what we can't get into for the health of the, of the co-op and, and the betterment of our, of our experience is, is having a lot of people skiing on a Saturday or Sunday at extremely discounted rates or free. Um, mm-hmm. That's not something that we want to handle and want to deal with because we think it, it, it detracts from what we are and what we're trying to do. But the Indy Pass is something we certainly are interested in, I think, um, if, if we weren't dealing with the COVID issues and, and the uncertainty of next year, um, we, we might be in a different situation with them that where we are right now. We're kind of just in the holding pattern. Um, once again, we just don't know what next season looks like. And if, if we are having a limit capacity even more, we need to figure out what that looks like. And, you know, you see lots of things thrown around. You know, maybe skiing is only for, you know, pass holders. For us, pass holders, shareholders, and certain products. And... We need to control that destiny of who that is. And if there's products out there like an Indy Pass that people have where they're expecting the ability to ski here and we have to limit that, we need to have control over that product. So that's really the discussions that are happening right now around that. And we've just politely said to the Indy Pass uh, people at this point that uh, we are interested. It's, you know, I think it's a very cool product. Um, we are very proudly independent. And uh, you know, we want to support that side of the industry. It's just we can't do it right now. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Mad River Glen has always been home to one of the best deals in skiing, the $3.50 rollback-the-clock deal every January to mark your uh, – sort of nod to your heritage and, and mark the anniversary, I believe, of when the mountain opened. Uh, have, have, as the social media machine has turned on and drawn more attention to that day, have you seen that getting to be a little bit more of a madhouse where, where people kind of – like it's always been there, but people know it now? Yeah, it's uh, it's always been a madhouse, I think is the best way to say it. It's certainly okay. an interesting day at, at Mad River. That being said, especially this year, um, Ski of the East really got on board and, and, 
and came on and, and promoted it and 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 uh I think that was a huge part of of a big growth this year and it, it's always very weather dependent and you know the very interesting thing about that day is it can be pouring rain or good snow, and either way we're gonna have a, a infinitely more skiers than we would have on a normal <laughs> Tuesday. Um, so it works for us. In some years, the mountain gets bit because we get a foot of snow, and everybody's skiing on $3.50. Other years, it's pouring rain, and we still have a lot of people, and we do well. So it, it's a very cool day. Um, but I do think social media is, I mean, it's changing everything. Um, but the big the big difference this year was the promotion on the ski the east side. Um, and we certainly saw that. I think it was a different crowd than it always has been. It's uh, Up until this year, it's been very much kind of a throwback day. You see a lot of straight skis. You see a lot of people skiing on older gear um, intentionally, or it's just, you know, they don't ski very often, and, and that's their day to do it. Whereas this year, we saw a lot more just, you know, the dedicated skier wanting to come down and check it out. So going back to the co-op meeting for a moment, one of the numbers that I thought was really interesting is Mount River Glen clocked in at right around 80,000 skier visits for the 2019 to 20 season. That was up 13.5% from the previous season, which was your longest season ever with 136 operating days. You had only 88 operating days this year, and yet you had a 13.5% increase in skier visits, break this down for us, Matt. How is that possible? You had more skier visits with 48 fewer operating days. The simple answer is it's 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 a bad science. Um, you know we <laughs> don't we don't have RFID gates. We don't count the number of times a, a pass holder uses their pass. It's a it's it's the old school way to do it. So it's it's a multiplier. So if you sell 100 passes, and we say that they skied 15 days. You do the math, and you get a skier visit number for pass holders. Um, so this year, with the increase in pass sales that we had, um, a lot of that being that 19 to 29 year old Twixter set or, or otherwise, the multiplier skewed the numbers. Um, but we also thought that we didn't want to change that because you know we, we we've always done that. Even you know in the bad 15, 16 year, we you know we still use that same type of formula. So it's it's we we were having a tremendous year. And we were selling more day tickets, um, and I think the, the numbers would have been, you know, even better had we been able to sell more day tickets through that March. But from a strictly reporting standpoint, it's an inexact science, and you know, unless we invest in and want to go to that RFID technology where we're counting visits on ski, on pass holders, it's always going to be that way. Well, nonetheless, nice to see that the ski area had a strong year in spite of the early shutdown. As you look ahead to next season, no one really knows what this is going to look like. And there's a range of possibilities from no skiing at all to normal operations. Both of those increasingly seem unlikely. Uh, what seems more likely is a scenario where you're skiing with some kind of social distancing measures in place. Now, on the mountain, Mad River Glen obviously is probably better positioned than any other mountain on the continent to operate as close to normal as possible with social distancing as far as chairlifts go. But how much have you thought about planning for next season as far as modifying operations in your base buildings and at other pinch points to spread people out? Uh, the short answer is we, thought, we think a lot about it. Um, we think daily about it. And, uh, yeah, the, like you said, the, the, the pinch points are our base lodge, our ticket offices, our rental department. Um, so we're actively looking at ways to see what we can do to, to see what that, the, the appropriate number is and, and how you space them out and how you keep it clean and, and you know, keep anything from spreading. Um, so we've got lots of ideas, and, and we're going to be investing in 
some infrastructure. You know, one of the main things we'll be doing is we, you know, Mad River for the longest time now has had a ticket office that's all inside, and, and everybody walks mm-hmm. in, and there's there's two or three computers and two or three great people helping everybody out, and there's not that outside ticket window that a lot of people are used to. We're going to have an outside ticket window next year. You know, we're going to mm-hmm. have that ability for people to come right from the parking lot, have a transaction that's outside and, and distance from people, and then go right up on the hill. Um, we're also looking at ways to spread out our food and beverage services. So we've got the Birdcage, which is a mid-mountain lodge that has food, opening that up more. It's also got bathrooms, keeping those open during the week. Um, and then looking at, you know, different pop-up areas for food and beverage service. So, you know, maybe the top of the single chair has some sort of food and beverage. Maybe the top of the double does. Um, looking at things along those lines. Um, the other nice thing is we are um, moving forward, and it's happening right now. We, As part of our capital campaign, we have a huge renovation going on of our base area. Um, it's a new patrol building that doesn't necessarily help the the social distancing, but there's some changes happening in the base box is the other big component that has been geared around making that more accessible and, and easier to use and you know things like opening up better avenues into our bar, which is a fantastic atmosphere, but it's a very tight-knit atmosphere. So um, all along we've been trying to improve access to that, and it's only becoming more important in the current environment. So as we've seen a few different ski areas attempt to reopen, we had Mount Baldy out in California, opened up on April 22nd. They went 10, 11 days till they ran out of snow. And they had kind of a golf course model where you reserved a slot and you could come four people every 10 minutes and, and park very far apart in the parking lot. And then this Friday, uh, Timberline out in Oregon plans to reopen and they have similar protocols in place. Are, are you, and, and then, of course, we'll have Southern Hemisphere skiing. Are, are you watching these experiments to see if there's anything that could work at Mad River Glen? Yes. Yep. Actively watching and, and having discussions amongst our staff and the industry um, to seeing where it goes. So I think, you know, I think the Southern Hemisphere is a very good indicator um, of what, you know, what we could be looking at and uh, as well as these other areas out West and, and, and at the same time looking at, you know, if ski areas and, and resort areas are able to open up this summer with any mountain biking, looking at how they're doing it. Um, and really just, you know, using their ideas and their experiences to inform our own and, and develop policies around it. And that, that's why I think time and, and the ability to wait and be as flexible as we can be being an independent area is so important for us, is to just things play out, let the guidance come out, see where we stand, and, and make adjustments accordingly. Yeah, I, I think you also have an advantage in that you don't typically tend to open until December, right? First or second week in December? Correct. Yeah, our scheduled opening day is is usually the second Saturday in December. Yeah, so you can watch what everyone else is doing and tweak from there. And, and also as areas open around Vermont, can see how whatever state regulations they put in place would apply to you. Um, I want to shift gears here and talk about the snowboarding ban. So Mad River Glen is one of the three ski areas in North America, along with Alta and Deer Valley in Utah, that still ban snowboards. There are a lot of competing narratives out there about how this ban came into place. And of course, those only get more mixed up with social media and every knucklehead advancing their own theory. Can you set the record straight for us, Matt? Why is there a snowboarding ban at Mad River Glen? Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, it's got a long history. And, uh, you know, the story or fable or whatever you want to call it, um, it started with the, with the previous owner, Betsy Pratt. Um, and there actually was a time, and actually Mad River was a very early adopter of snowboarding. Um, there was a, a year or two period in the late uh, late 80s, early 90s, where they were allowed. And uh, what was happening was, if you people who have been to the top of the single chair, 
It's not a traditional unload ramp. And to, to get off the chair, you have to skate you know, to the side rather than ski down a ramp. And snowboarding back at that time, you know, obviously there weren't as many people doing it. They weren't as experienced, and they were having some issues getting off. So in order to accommodate that, Betsy at the time was hiring somebody to stand up there and manage the chairs as they came up for snowboarding. She decided at the time that that wasn't worth it. Uh, you know, I don't really want to get into the values of that. I think people can understand that back then it was a very – nobody really knew where it was going. This was way early mm-hmm. on. It certainly wasn't having the explosive growth at the time, and people didn't see that happening. So she decided that no more, single, no more snowboarders on the single chair, and they could ski only on the double, on the double chairs. That didn't sit well with some of the local snowboarding crowd, and as the story goes, she was you know, continually being hounded about it, and an infamous altercation went down. You know, where she was approached in the parking lot at a local store in town and you know, didn't like the attitudes of those approaching her and ultimately said, you know, that's it, you're done, no more snowboarding in that river. And from then on, she didn't allow it. And from there, it just kind of became what Mad River was. And when the co-op took over, they decided that they wanted to follow that, follow that lead and that policy. And that was in 1995. And uh, they decided the time to continue that. And it really, at this point, it's it's just the fabric of who we are. Um, you know, every every ski area, every business has its you know, has its things of what makes them special, what makes them who they are, and. And the snowboarding ban, you know, regardless of how you feel about it, it's what it, it's one of the things that makes Mad River what it is. Um, you know, you, people talk about scraping snow here, there, the way the moguls are formed. I think that's that, in my mind, is secondary to what Mad River is. And it's just, you know, we are a ski area. We are a throwback to what it was and 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 what it has, what, what it's always been, which is, you know, strictly a skiing endeavor. And that's that, you know, as as far as I can tell, is the way it's going to stay. So do you think this is a settled issue then? Is this something that the co-op board revisits periodically or once in a while, or, or is, this just, is this just done? It's, I, I, it's, 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 it's a done deal. Um, I mean, to give you an example, I came on in 2017. I went through a rigorous interview process. The question was never asked. Hmm. So at no point in time was an interviewer asking me, what's my, what's my stance on snowboarding? It just it was it's it just it's not an issue that really ever gets talked about in my three years it's never come up in any serious manner at a board meeting or otherwise um, I you know there are stories where the occasional person brings it up at the annual meeting and is uh, quickly you know told to you know sit down and and uh, let it go um, I've not been part not been privy to that it's not been been during my time but I think I don't see. At this point, I don't see you know what would motivate Matterland shareholders and its population of people to change that policy. Um, and once again, a lot of it goes back to that capacity thing. We don't need more skiers, generally speaking, on weekends and when the snow is good. And when it's pouring rain and the snow is awful, a snowboarder isn't more likely to come to Mad River than a skier is. So we've got to find ways to mitigate that, but it's... It, allowing snowboarding is not likely to change that equation and what would have to happen from a bureaucratic point of view for that to happen i mean would would a certain percentage of the so would someone in the board have to bring it up and and what would it take to get it up for a vote and then how would what percentage would have to vote on it i don't know if you know the particulars of the bylaws in that way but but what what would have to happen to, to make this change 
Yeah, so that's, uh, there, are, there are three things in the bylaws that require a two-thirds majority vote of the shareholders. The snowboarding ban, snowmaking above 2,300 feet, and increasing lift capacity. And that's, you know, that is spelled out in the bylaws. So those three things are that important to what makes Mad River what it is. So somebody would, yes, somebody would have to introduce it, and then they would, you know, they'd have to get, it doesn't really speak to how to get, how many people you would need to get it on the ballot, but you'd have to go through that process, and then there'd have to be a vote. So, you know, we certainly have discussions with snowboarding, you know, people and, and, and groups of people, and, you know, there's nothing to say that right now there's 2,100 shares, there's 3,000 available. You get enough snowboarders to buy shares, you can make a run at it. Would it be a risky run? Absolutely. Would I, as the GM, support it this time? Not likely. So of those three things that you mentioned that you needed a two-thirds majority vote in the bylaws, another one is the snowmaking above 2,300 feet. Uh, is that the number that they were at in 1995, or has that actually been amended over time? That's, that has been the same number since 1995 and is, is, is known around the area as the, as the quote-unquote flurry line. So above there, it's generally accepted that there's enough natural snow in Vermont to, to continue to operate and ski. That being said, I think as we all know, winters are changing, and that line has probably moved up the hill. Um, and I, that's one I could see myself getting behind at some point. Um, there's, there's lots of other issues surrounding that as far as whether or not we actually practically could move snowmaking effectively farther up the hill. But taking that out, that's one that I think you know, has some merit and discussion and at least starting the discussion to see how we would go about changing that and seeing the support to do it. And I think, you know, there hasn't been a huge discussion around it in my tenure because um, we've really been focused on the lower mountain and, and bolstering that capacity from a snowmaking standpoint. But I do think it's got, you know, ultimately at some point, if we continue to see winners, you know, worsen, for lack of a better word, that that, 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 that would be possible. So you mentioned earlier that your snowmaking capabilities have improved. Is that a matter then of just investing in better equipment? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's better equipment. It's better pumping capacity. Um, it's, it's more snow guns. Now, when I say more, it's moving from three to seven. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's, but it's really, I think it's, it's a commitment operationally and financially to start as early as we can. So now we start on November 1st or as soon as we can after that point. And, and doing it as often as we can. So, you know, prior to my arrival, they might not even think about making snow until December 1st or, or maybe even later, whereas now, you know, October 15th rolls around, and I'm talking about Mount Nops guys and going, are we ready? You know, let's get guns out. Let's get hoses ready. Let's, you know, let's just agree as a business and as, as a ski area that we might make some snow in November, and we might make a pile, and it might melt out, you know, 20 30%. But that's okay because we still have 60 70% left, and we're going to need that to push around and manage. Um, so that, that's the philosophy that we've, that we've really latched onto, and I think it's worked, um, as well as you know, the infrastructure is needed to do that, right? So we, we, we've got a serious water issue. We don't have a snowmaking pond. We have a stream with a very, very tiny containment, so we're making off – making snow off of flow. So we invested in a snowmaking pump that enables us to take full advantage of that flow when we have it. And then we've invested in, in bringing back um, a lot of the snowmaking lines that actually used to exist. I mean, the, the, the co-op used to make snow all the way to what, you know, what is the old 
double station or mid station on the double. We finally mm. got back that snowmaking line that's been dead in the ground for years. Wow. Um, and we did that last summer. So looking at things like that and, and, and moving forward there. But really, it, you know, it's mostly operational, just committing to doing it. So you'll be able to blow snow back up there to the old double mid station? Yeah, we did this year. So now it's, you know, oh, wow. either the double mid station or called Kay's Grove. But if you're riding over the double, there's a stretch of pine trees um, and you're pretty low to the ground. And that's where the mid station used to be. And yeah, this year we can, you know, there's, there's been a pipe there for 25 years. Oh, wow. But it was, it didn't work, you know, in electric. And this year, and this, you know, we, we got it back to that point. So um, that was a huge step for us. And it was, you know, even going for a walk. A week or two ago, you can see that snow now and go, ah, that, oh, wow. w- that would have been great. Had we wanted to keep going, we would have had it that high. Because <laughs> it really happened about two years ago. We had a rain event in January, and I went up in the groomer and, and uh, you know took a trip to the top of the mountain and pushing some snow as we went up and down. And, you know, you're coming down and, and you, you know, you're piecing it back together, going, okay, we could ski this, we could ski this. And then you just got to a point where you just you can't ski it. But you can see where we had stopped making snow at the birdcage. Right. You know, God, if we could only get this, you know, 200 yards, we'd be skiing. We'd be open. And so then let's find a way to do that. So you get you get down to Snowcat and you go to the Mount Obstructor's office and say, find me a way to make <laughs> snow. Just give me, you know, give me 20 feet by 100 feet. Is that 200 feet that was bare, is that above the 2,300-foot line? No. It wasn't that time. But, it, you know, the... It can be. You know, the 2,300-foot line, for those that know the mountain, is where the single chair crosses Bunny and that, that Case Grove area. Um, and then, you know, if, for those that know the mountain, again, there's that, there's that area on the double from the old mid-station to, to the bottom of the Slalom Hill Trail that is above 2,300 feet that I think is the next area we need to look at. So even though you're not actively considering raising the, the altitude that you make snow at, you are looking at investing more in snowmaking in general. Yeah, we've 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 ha- we've made a, a very solid commitment the past two years. Um, we, in, in our capital plan is um, you know funded by our by our the big capital campaign. We've got some money left um, to make a couple more changes, um, and we'll, so we'll be doing that. But this summer it doesn't look likely, but hopefully next. And it's a board meeting. You pointed to that. Uh, to that spot on Bunny that you just referred to off the single line is the trail most in need of snowmaking. Do you have a plan to tackle that? Yeah, we, uh, like I said, everything going on this summer, especially with our base area projects, it's not likely, and we have to, you know, look look into some other, you know, permitting type issues to go a little bit higher. Um, but, you know, just making sure that we're, that we're thinking about it and planning for it. And, uh, you know, even next year, just making that much more snow at the top of the line, and if we have to spend some diesel to take the groomer up there and push it farther. Maybe that's something we have to do. Cause that's, that's cool. the main way off that side of the hill. If you, if you can't get down mm-hmm. money, then you can't run the single effectively. So you had a lot of work going on this summer, $3.2 million project. You're updating or replacing several buildings. Let's talk about those. You referred to them a little bit earlier. So first the new patrol and ski school building that actually sits on the same footprint as the old building. But is uh, as your facilities chair, Britton Rogers, characterized it, it's an, quote, insulated, airtight, dry building with a full foundation. Uh, that, that speaks ominously to the condition of the old building. Uh, what can you tell us about the new building and what about the old building that it's replacing? Certainly. So the old building, it started originally in the early 50s as the Mountain Ops 
building. So it was a garage. Um, and then it slowly, you know, turned into the ski patrol building, had an add-on to house the ski instructors. Um, they had another add-on to, you know, include some more gear here and there. But, you know, the last add-on was, uh, you know, a floor and a building resting on cinder blocks on grade. Um, so it just it just had issues and was pieced together and and you know the co-op um, and Betsy before that had other priorities as far as where money was spent and it just kind of it struggled along and and you know people that that used that building called it home and did everything they could to keep it going and and make it the best experience possible and I think it speaks volumes to our staff and our clientele of how they're able to to take things that are not nearly ideal and make them a wonderful experience, but it just needed help. And, and rather than invest in it and try to make it function as it was, um, you know, it had drainage issues in the spring, water would come down the hill, get trapped in the corner of the foundation underneath the building and then start pouring into the basement. Um, and we just, you know, we, we looked at reusing parts of it and finally decided, you know what, just scrap it. Um, let's start anew. Let's build ourselves a building well into the future. So the new one, it, it, it's going to serve the same audience, um, but it's going to be more usable space. So the other one, just the way it was built, you know, had areas where, you know, the way the roof line went, you just couldn't use an entire section of the building. Mm. Whereas this one has, you know, a full entire floor, um, a much bigger basement for storage and other um, other uses. Um, so it'll, it'll be able to accomplish that. So even with all the upgrades, you're keeping the same footprint, which is interesting. Why was it important to do that rather than say, okay, you know, yes, your base area is tight, but you would have had some room to build a, a larger building. Why did you choose to keep the same footprint? Um, two factors, really. One uh, being the, the tightness of the, of the base area and you know, where buildings sit within that. And um, it's just, it was laid out in such a way that it took full advantage of every, every possible inch of ground. And to make it any bigger would would have cut off, you know, either either desperately needed parking or access ways through the mountain. Um, and it's one of those unique buildings that, as a ski patrol building and as home to ski patrol, you have to you have to be able to get there on snow. You have to be able to take a toboggan with an injured patient and get him inside the building. And then from there, you have to be able to meet the ambulance on the other side. So it has certain constraints that you know just a regular building might not. Um, so we had to look at that. And then you know the other big one is cost. Um, these are, this, this project is 80% funded by donations to the co-op and to the Preserve Our Paradise campaign. And, you know, that money is not endless. And, and, and our volunteers and our shareholders and people that donated were extremely generous. We raised just under $5.5 million all told. But we had to be wise with where we spent it and make sure that we, were, we could spread it around enough to be effective um, and still get what we felt we needed most. So really it was a space and practical issue and then a financing issue. So how's the progress coming along? I saw the demolition on Facebook. That was pretty awesome. Um, you should go check that out if you haven't already, people who are listening. Uh, but where are you at with that project now? Uh, we're doing great. We, uh, you know, the, the start of it got pushed back with everything going on. Um, and it started off a little bit slow just with the, with the uh, restrictions in place as far as the number of people going. But uh, we demoed it, uh, I think it must be two weeks now. Um, and we're pouring, we poured the footings a couple days ago. The walls are being poured on Friday, and uh, we're actually almost, we are within a couple days of being caught up to our original timeline, uh, which is pretty amazing, oh, wow. and, and uh, definitely a huge shout-out. We, uh, we've got a great construction management team. Um, a local outfit out of Brandon, Vermont, 
uh, called Naylor and Breen and Architects for Modern Integrated Architecture have been have worked really really well from the get go together, and I think are really going to be able to pull this off. So that uh, it's going full full bore ahead. There's a ton of activity. You know, going to the office is is uh, very cool to see it all happen. It's very noisy because um, it's right out the window, but uh, it, it's really great to see. And, and now they're, they're we're about to actually we're going to be demoing the the uh, the section of the base box that's coming down on uh, Thursday the 14th here. Wow. So you're also re- doing a big renovation on the base box. What are you updating there, and how is that work coming along? Yeah, so that, uh, you know, that um, is starting just after the patrol building, and uh, really that one is a couple different things. Chief among them um, were accessibility and code and safety upgrades um, that were desperately needed. Uh, I mean, that building is original, or parts of it anyway, to the ski area in 1948. Um, if anybody wants to check out Instagram, we had a great picture up there of the original base box in 1948, and it has, still has the original fireplace room um, that will forever live at Mad River. Um, but it had been built on. The last significant addition or work that had been done on the building was in the early 70s, and just a lot of things have changed since then. Um, you know, it's a very tight building um, as far as people and where you move around, um, it's just certainly not not even remotely um, handicap accessible, so that's a big part of it. So we're adding an elevator, a three-story elevator. Um, we're adding some fire um, and code safety issues. So you know, a fire, a three-story enclosed uh, exit on the other part of the building, so people can can you know get up and down to the third floor more than one way. Um, we're adding uh, some more bathrooms to the main floor because that's certainly part of. Um, part of the, you know, one of the biggest choke points in that base box is access to those facilities. Um, as I mentioned before, we're adding, you know, we're calling, we're calling it a bar window, but a way to, to get a drink uh, without going into the choke point of the bar and uh, heading out on the deck, uh, which will be great. And then, uh, and then the you know, the other biggest part is overhauling the back of the house kitchen and food and beverage operations. Um, they've been doing amazing things and providing a great product and in a wholly inadequate space um, that just involved people moving around too close together and, and uh, you know, pieces of equipment that just weren't, weren't working and had been there for a very long time. You know, it's, we had to you know, take out some ovens that the only way you're moving them is if you take the wall down that, that, that the room that it's in. So those walls are coming down and, and uh, either getting replaced or that stuff's getting overhauled and, and put back in. Lots of positive momentum up there. This is a really uncertain time, Matt. I don't think anyone can claim to know what this fall and winter is going to look like. So last question before I let you go, how are you feeling about the future of Mount River Glen? Really good. Really good. I think it's, you know, it's an amazing, amazing place. I'm extremely honored to be a part of it. Um, And you know, what really makes Mount River is its people. And I think, you know, everybody is willing to do what's needed to be done to keep it, to keep it going, to keep, you know, the experience that it offers open to as many people as possible. And while, you know, in the relative short term here with, with the pandemic going on, I think, you know, next season, as we've talked about, is there's a, a lot of huge unknowns. But I think we've been able to make some changes at the ski area that are going to enable us to function well into the future. And uh, I think people are seeing it. I think they're coming on board and buying into that vision. And I think, you know, a lot of people are looking for what Matt Over can offer um, and, and, and does offer so well. And that's that, that amazing skier experience, that really tight-knit community, and that sense of feeling of belonging to something um, that's greater than yourself and, 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 uh, and really buying into that. And so I think, 
you know, the, the ski industry has some issues, and, and uh, our, our winters are, are getting more variable. But at the same time, we're, we're adjusting in the appropriate way and, and uh, investing in spots that have the most benefit to our skiers and our, and our stakeholders. So I'm, I'm really positive on it. I think, you know, we, I think we're at the point now where we can weather some down years if we have to, um, but continue to march forward. Well, lots of exciting things happening up there, Matt. I can't wait to come up and check out the new work this winter. Um, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great to talk about it. That's Matt Lillard, General Manager of Mad River Glen, Vermont. We could have kept going. I had so many more questions. I really wish we could have gotten into the single chair a little bit more, but it'll have to wait for next time. Awesome job, Matt. Thank you very much for that. And thank you all for listening. If you want more of that kind of thing, subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter for free at skiing.substack.com. That is the main communications channel for the Storm. And you're going to want to be on that to get all of the updates as soon as they're live. So what's next? Maybe another Storm Skiing podcast? Maybe another COVID podcast? I have a lot of things working. I'm probably going to slow these things down for the summer pretty soon, but I will keep them coming. Thank you so much for your time. Stay safe out there. I'm Stuart Winchester. I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.